We have the joy tonight of turning in our Bibles to the book of Ezra, and tonight we'll be reading from Ezra chapter 8. It's always great if you have a Bible with you and you keep it open when we're going through these passages, but tonight I'm going to be referring um, more than I would ordinarily refer to the portion that we're not going to read, so it will be beneficial for you to have your Bibles with you and open But we begin reading at verse 21. If you're not here ordinarily, I just want to alert you to the fact that we've been preaching through the book of Ezra, so you can always catch up online or on our YouTube channel. Just go to our webpage, as you all are very familiar with doing by this time, and you just navigate to the point, you see the sermons, and you can find the previous um, sermons based on this book. But for tonight, the Lord has brought us to Ezra chapter 8. Again, as I said, we'll begin reading at verse 21 and continue through the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Then I set apart twelve of the leading princes, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offering for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. I weighed out into their hand 650 talents of silver and silver vessels worth 200 talents and 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth 1,000 derricks and two vessels of fine bright bronze as precious as gold. And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord, and the vessels are holy, and the silver and the gold are freewill offerings to the Lord, and the vessels are holy, and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of the Lord." So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes uh, by the way. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. On the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth the priest, the son of Uriah, and with him was Eliezer, the son of Phinehas, and with them were the Levites, Jozebad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Benui. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, twelve bulls for all Israel, ninety-six rams, seventy-seven lambs, and as a sin offering, twelve male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river, and they aided the people and the house of God. This is the word of our Lord. 
Would you join me in prayer? Father, you now take us to a passage of Scripture that may be pretty unfamiliar to most of us, recording the events of people traveling through the desert many, many years ago. And yet in your wisdom and your kindness to us tonight, you've brought us as a congregation to Ezra chapter 8 to learn from this passage not only what you were doing in history, but what that means for those of us who are gathered here tonight and those listening over our web uh, web stream. Father, we trust that you are able to speak to us. The Bible says that the Spirit takes the things that are known to the mind of God and makes them also clear to our hearts and our minds. And we pray for His powerful work here among us. Father, answer this prayer in your grace, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. This is undoubtedly one of the most interesting chapters in the book of Ezra. Maybe it doesn't strike you as that initially, so let me explain what I mean. It's very important when we're looking at this chapter to understand where we are in this book as a whole. If you were to go back a few chapters and stick your finger in between chapters 6 and 7, you should know that in between the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7, there is about 60 years. That's a long time, especially those of us who are about 60. And when we turn then to chapters 6 and 7, It's important for us to realize at the beginning of the book of Ezra, there was one great return of the Israelites to the promised land. And then when we read in chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6 about that first group that came back, we read about all the struggle they had in trying to rebuild the temple, and that portion of the book ends in chapter 6 by, if you remember, them finally completing the building of the temple And there was crying and there was joy and it was all mixed together. The temple had finally been rebuilt. Let me tell you why I'm explaining this to you. Because the book of Ezra is about the worship of God. That's the point. If I can even make it more emphatically, there is nothing more precious than the worship of God. It is worth traveling thousands of miles in order to worship our God. That's the point Ezra is making. When we turn to chapter 7 and 8, understand that in the book, chapter 7 in the middle is the first time that we actually read about Ezra appearing. Chapter 7, verse 8, it says, and Ezra came to Jerusalem. Now ask this question with me, isn't that interesting? That we wait all the way to the middle of chapter 7 to find out that now Ezra is appearing on the scene in a book that is named after him. Why is it that God waits so long to bring Ezra, this man, under the scene of this book? And the answer I have for you is that chapters 7 and following are some of the most important in what we will think about together. Maybe I can even say, to heighten your curiosity, the most important And in chapter 7 and 8, we read about one of the other trips. Remember, one big trip at the beginning of the book, and then multiple trips in the rest of this book. In this particular chapter, chapter 8, we are reading about another one of these trips, a more minor trip. You might say you went on Christmas vacation all the way to Disneyland and spent the whole time there and had a wonderful trip. That was the beginning of the book. Chapter 8 might strike you more like you went to grandma's house and had to eat those cookies you didn't really like. It's a minor trip. 
And yet the point of this book is not to focus on the trip itself, but what it tells us about the importance of the worship of God. This may be the second longest introduction that I've ever had to a sermon. This morning's was longer, but it is to get to this point. This book is about the ministry of the worship of God, and this chapter is about the ministry that is to be preserved. Or to put it this way, God cares a lot about the worship that is offered to him so much that he will go to extraordinary means in order for that worship to be preserved. Or let me just put it in kind of a statement for you that you can gnaw on as we work through these verses. The steadiness of ministry, of worship, is made possible by the protection of God. If I can flesh it out, this is what I mean. The worship that happens week after week in this building and many other buildings in our community and across the world, the steadiness of that worship, of that ministry, is only possible by the protection of God. God is the one who makes it occur. That's the point of chapter 8. Now let me explain. I noted before we read these verses that we didn't read verses 1 through 20. If I had a great Scottish or Irish voice, you might have delighted me hearing, uh, hearing from me the names that are found in these early verses. I don't have that sort of voice, but I do want to explain to you what's going on in these first 20 verses. That's why it's helpful if you have your Bibles open. You'll see at the beginning of this chapter, again in these verses, we did not read a whole list of names. And if you read through them, many of them, of course, would be unfamiliar to you, but I have to explain two things about the names in this list that are important for what I'm telling you tonight. First, the list of those who came back on this minor trip are almost identical to the family names of those who came back in the earliest chapters of this book. In fact, there's remarkable similarity that seems there's only one family name that is different. Why? The answer has to do with the people, most likely, who were back in Persia. By this time, the Israelites who had been captured and were living in Persia, remember, were a couple of generations past what we read earlier in the book. Those family lines that were back in Persia, who were faithful to God, continued to want to go back to Canaan. Even though time had passed, their longing was still the same. Why did they want to go back? Because back in Canaan was the temple and the worship of God. And because that was the place where God was worshipped, where he had set his name, they longed even for generations to go back. And then on the other hand, there were a lot of Israelites for whom they didn't believe it was worth it to make this long trip back. And whether it was the first major group that returned or now this more minor group, they said to themselves, what's the point? We're living in Persia now. It's rather comfortable. We've established our families. We have houses. We have places we live. We know where the dentist is. Well, not actually that. But we know the familiar territory in which we live. Let's stay here. So these names actually represent to us, I believe, a division between the Israelites and their longings for the worship of God. The other thing you don't see, and you probably wouldn't notice, but it's very important, is in this group that is found in the first 20 verses, there are zero Levites. 
Again, you might ask the question, why is that important? Let me tell you, since you're asking. That doesn't mean a lot to us, but it would have meant everything to the Israelites and the reason for their journey. You see, the Levites were the family from which the priests came. And to set out in this long journey to go back to the land of Canaan, back to the temple of God, back to the worship of God, but to leave the people who are capable of leading us in worship behind was the opposite of the purpose for their journey. And so we read in the last part of those first 20 verses that when Ezra realized there were no leaders who could help them worship when they returned, let alone the long journey in which they were embarking, he stopped everyone at the river as they were just starting, and he recruited the Levites to come with them. Again, as I say, that important was the worship of God, that he would pause this trip in order for the Levites to join them on their return back to the promised land. Again, we didn't read these verses, but I want you to think about that because it helps us understand what comes in verses 21 through 35 or 36. We're set up with a notion in the early part of the chapter that this is all about the worship of God, the importance of the worship of God, leadership in the worship of God, making sure the Levites were themselves with us. The chapter's not given to us, just let me put a negative here. This chapter is not given to us as some great example about how to travel well or to pray or to fast or how to recruit the next pastor. That's not what's given here. The people of Israel did travel and they did fast and they did recruit the Levites to come back. But the point of this chapter, like the point of this book, is so much bigger. And that is the God of the universe who had set his name in Jerusalem These Israelites were convinced were worthy of worship even if it required them leaving everything they knew behind and go the many miles back. If that's what it meant to worship God, we will do everything in our power in order to go. God is so great, my friends. He is so worthy of worship that these people were willing to go. And I want you to sense that in the passion of this chapter. This is no dry record of Israelites simply trudging their way through the dust back to Israel. These are Israelites who are overcome with a need to worship God in the place he had set, and therefore they were willing to go. To sum it all up in a word, these first 20 verses are this worship, because God is worthy. So let's dig into these verses now that I read to you, beginning in verse 21. Here we come to the part of the passage, as I said, that we just read, and listen again to what it's all about. The steadiness of worship, the consistency of worship, the importance of worship is made possible by the protection of God. I want to explain that by pointing to three things, and these are sort of in a logical sequence. First, if you look at verse 20, you'll see that this trip back to the promised land in order to worship was enabled by prayer and fasting. If you look at verse 20, it says very clearly there, and I'm going to put on my glasses again so I can read it, not read the same line twice. Verse 21, it says, And I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God 
to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. Now, it may be difficult for you to appreciate how significant this journey was. I thought about surveying you to ask you, beginning with the youngest, how far do you believe it was from the capital city of Shushan, uh, Sushan, rather, which was the capital city of Persia, back to Jerusalem, the capital in Cana? Maybe you would guess it would be a couple hundred miles. You would be wrong. Maybe 300, 400, again wrong. 500 and 600, still wrong. 700, 800, further than that. He was more than 900 miles, just short of 1,000 miles from the capital of Persia back to Jerusalem. And newsflash, not only were there no jet planes, there were no cars, many of the people simply walked 1,000 miles. Work out the math in your head, 10 miles a day for more than three months walking through the desert back to the land of of Israel. And not only that, as the story itself notes, and we know from history, this was not an easy journey. It was through the deserts. And it was a desert that was notorious for robbers and bandits who would have loved to steal whatever these people were carrying with them. This was a dangerous trip back. And as we will see in a moment, the Israelites are carrying a lot of precious metal that was worth a lot of money. So it would have made sense for the Israelites to be highly cautious about making this trip. And Ezra, you know, did not ask the king for protection. He did not ask for soldiers and horsemen because he had claimed to the king already, our God can protect us He protects those he loves, and he punishes those who live in rebellion. And now you can see why tonight I said that God protects his worship. That's what makes worship possible. I'm taking those words from what Ezra says, that God does exactly that. And so the Israelites stop, and they pray and fast. Not strategize. Not worry, not wonder. No, they stop at the river to pray and to fast. And I want to just stop there for a moment and tell you the first thing that is necessary in order for the steadiness, the continuity of worship to to occur, the steadiness that is made possible by the protection of God, in order for that to occur, here's what this passage tells us. We pray for that protection of God that worship might continue. We pray. We ask Him for it. Some time ago, one of the saints in our church, in this church, in this body, a man that um, many of you might know, but I'm not going to name because I didn't ask him if I could tell you his name. I was visiting with him, and he remarked to me and retelling the history of this congregation that among all the things you might or might not realize about why we're here, he said in his mind the most important reason this church exists is back before this church was formed and then shortly in its infancy and for a few years after, there would be people he would invite to his home and they would pray and they would pray and they would pray. And he said sometimes we would pray deep into the night and there were a few occasions where we prayed through the entire night that the Lord would give his blessing to this infant work 
to this small desire that in this place, this church would exist. About 10 days ago, I went down to St. Louis to talk to a group of men, including a very, very well-seasoned, experienced church planter, about the possibility of what it means to plant a church. And what I took away from that conference, that two-day conference, was a number of things, but this verse is at the top of my list. You'd see it on my notes. It says, in order for a church to plant a church, the first thing the church has to learn is how to pray, how to pray, how to pray, and how to pray. There is no success in ministry. There's no possibility of that success occurring unless we humble ourselves to pray. You see, the brilliance of prayer is that it puts us exactly in the position to receive the Lord's help. You cannot pray to God, at least you ought not, and boast to Him about how great you are and how He'd be honored to work through us. No, in prayer, we are expressing our thankfulness to God and we are demonstrating by the words that we say and by the attitude of our heart that we need His help and we need it badly. There is no way what we're going to do, whether it's in life and family and community or in our church, that things will occur apart from asking God for His help. Do you believe that? Do you practice that? And if you are wondering tonight and you're listening to me, if praying and fasting for God's help is really that important, let me read you a few verses from the New Testament. Matthew 14, verse 23 After he had sent the crowds away, he went up in the mountain by himself to pray. Mark 6, verse 46, after bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. Luke 6, verse 12, it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray and spent the whole night in prayer to God. Mark chapter 1, verse 35, early in the morning while it was still dark, he got up, left the house, and went to a secluded place and was praying there. Luke 5, verse 16, but he himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. And then to summarize it all, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, in the days of Jesus' flesh, he offered, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud cryings and tears. I don't think it's too much to say that our Savior's work was enabled by the prayers for help that he offered to his father. He asked that his father would work through him, and he did that through long and scheduled times of prayer. And as much as you desire that God would be at work in you and through you, let me commend to you this simple thing that the Israelites did before they embarked on an almost thousand-mile trip through dangerous territory back to the place where they wanted to worship God, let me commend the same to you, that you spend your preparation in prayer. And that as you pray, you seek the protection of God, both in your life, but especially in the context of this passage, that you ask Him to protect the worship that we offer to Him. That's the first thing this passage says. There is no work of worship apart from beginning with prayer. Hear that? There is no work of worship apart from beginning with prayer. Here's the second thing in verses 24 through 34. They prayed for the protection of God for worship, but they specifically prayed for protection for the gifts of worship. Let me explain. 
The need for protection becomes very, very important, not just generally for worship, but the work of worship, the gifts for worship. When we read in this passage about all that the Israelites were carrying back with them, you notice all kinds of silver and gold, even bronze, that the Israelites carried back. Some of it came from the king, and some of it came from Israelites who were not able to make the journey back. I tabulated that. Would you be interested to know how much silver and gold they brought back? The silver is, when tabulated, roughly 25 tons of silver. And the gold is approximately three and three-quarter tons of gold. I don't have to tell you how many millions of dollars that would be in today's dollars. It is millions upon millions upon millions. It was incredibly precious for the people of that day as well. Imagine, I was thinking about this, imagine you walk into your bank and you say, I would like to empty my bank account and I'd like you to put it in this clear Ziploc bag and I'm going to go walk around... Grand Rapids are better. I'm going to walk around the south side of Chicago with my life savings in a Ziploc bag, holding it like this, telling everybody, look what I've got. That would pale in comparison to what the Israelites did walking through that desert. There's no hiding that amount of gold and silver. They were sitting targets. This was gifts. They were intended to be brought back for worship in order that the temple could be decorated. The worship could have been supported. It wasn't personal gold. It wasn't silver for them. It was for the worship of God. Now you can understand why Ezra prays, not just for the journey, but for the protection of the gifts for worship. And over those three or four or five months, whoever it took for them to walk, Step after step, holding all of this precious material, God protected them every step of the way. No one robbed them. No one threatened them. No one stole from them. They walked all the way back from Persia to the promised land with millions and millions of dollars and no military protection. One of the things that strikes me immediately is how precious these items were in the worship of God. This was invaluable. But you know what, friends? These gifts in whatever forms they come are invaluable. It's not just the money that we bring, the money you put in the offering plate that is valuable in the worship of God. There are many other things as well. In fact, for many of us, the more precious items are not the money we offer. It is our time, our ability, our sympathy, our companionship. These are the things that are most precious to us. It is for us more like the walking there can be harder than the giving of financial resources. And yet God protected those resources for them. And what I want to tell you tonight in terms of the theme of this passage, the steadiness of ministry is only possible by the protection of God. God offered that protection to them, and He offers it to you as well. I know how this works. Most of us do it. There's a scarcity of resource. And we understand that because we only have so much time, we only have so much energy, we only have so much money, we have to decide where to allot 
how we're going to use those resources. Let me encourage you, I think appropriately from this passage, that God desires to protect those resources for you as well. You're not simply giving them away. You're not simply throwing them into the wind as though they don't matter. They're not precious. No, God is able to protect those resources as well. And the protection of those resources is meant for the steady, continual worship of God. How do I know this? Again, the greatest proof that the Bible has to offer is that Jesus himself offered himself in worship to God. Maybe you haven't thought about that. Jesus offering himself was an honor to his Father. He held nothing back. He gave the fullest of who he was. And even through the deepest and darkest times of Jesus' life, he was protected by the Father that that worship could be given fully and truly. And I want you to hear that tonight as well. Protection of those gifts for worship logically follow after the prayer where we ask God for that protection. God hears, God answers, God offers that protection of those gifts. Which leads me to the last thing I want to say, and it's really just the last verse. If you look at what it says at the very end, not the very last verse, but verses 35 and 36. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel. Now I'm going to read again what they offered because I want to tell you why it's important. Twelve bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 72 lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. All of this was a burnt offering to the Lord. Again, if you go back in your Bibles to that first mass return that is found in the early chapters, and you follow these people rebuilding the temple, there comes a point at which they also offer sacrifices to the Lord. You will see a great deal of similarity between the sacrifices they're offered then and are offered now. What does that mean? These Israelites saw that their journey to return to the worship of God in Jerusalem now was completed. It was not just that God promised them protection, He gave it. And He gave it to the extent that they could appear before Him in worship. The protection He gave was not only theoretical, it was not only the journey, it was in actuality as it came to the point they could offer themselves and what they owned before God Himself. At the very first opportunity for many of them to ever worship at the temple, They gave generously, and they gave consistently, as was appropriate to people returning to God. I want to challenge you with this as well as you listen tonight to Ezra chapter 8. God can protect you for the purpose of worship. He can. Maybe we think about that in very dramatic terms. When the Bible says, speaking in the Gospels, that not even the gates of hell can prevail against the church. The church is established by God. Not even the most serious, focused energies of the evil one can ever destroy the church. And here we are as the church, doing the most churchly thing possible, offering worship to God. Nothing can stand against the ability of God to protect the church and its worship. Nothing. 
And maybe again we think in very dramatic terms. If we lived in North Korea or China or areas in Africa, we might think to ourselves, there we would need the protection of God because their worship would be threatened. But you know, in every place in which God's people live, there's a similar threat against worship. It's just the form in which it comes. Maybe it's indifference. Maybe it's distraction. Maybe it's a situation in which we say it'll always be there. Why pay attention now? And in our situation as well, our God comes to us in moments like this and says, I will protect my worship. I will determine to protect my people from ever failing to see the importance of the worship of God. He's doing that for you tonight. And He's doing that through a passage that is so far removed from our ordinary thoughts and experiences. When we start reading it, you might immediately think, what does this have to say to me? Here's what it has to say to you. If I can sort of cast it in a slightly different light... The worship that we're offering to God tonight, that we offer as a church of Jesus Christ, is not just protected by God, just like we find here in Ezra chapter 8. Can I add to it this reality? The worship we offer to God today is better than what they offered then. The worship they offered then was anticipation of the Savior. Here we are, the Savior has come. We know Him in the pages of Scripture. We are delighted by His words and His works and His promises to us. This is not just a story of the protection of Old Testament worship. This is meant as an application to the protection of the worship we offer to God now in Jesus Christ. So let me offer you a greater than argument. If God protected the worship of these Israelites over a thousand miles, carrying millions of dollars of precious, precious metals to the point they gathered in the temple to offer that worship, then those who are gathered in the name of Jesus Christ in this time and place, He will protect you from all that could threaten you, that you can be here to offer to Him in Jesus' name worship that glorifies our God. What a joyous reality our God has given to us. Let's bow in prayer. Father, it is true that your word speaks in glowing terms about the nature of worship. And we pray that as we are gathered here and we did this morning, that we would sense the greatness of our God with us. We don't gather in a temple like the Old Testament Israelites did, a temple that was impressive physically, It was impressive in its beauty and glory. We are here tonight in the presence of a God who is not seen with our eyes, but is seen by faith. And we look around us and we see others who are gathered here. This is the temple of the Lord, Paul says. This is the place where the Holy Spirit dwells. We are so thankful that by your promise you protected not only those Israelites, you will protect us as well. And Lord, may we offer to you then that worship that is pleasing to the God of the universe for every day of our lives. Keep us from the evil one who would try to convince our souls 
that worship is not significant, it's not important, it's really not to dominate the very center of our existence. Instead, he tells us it is merely one more activity to be done in life. Lord, if that's the way in which the church is threatened today, rise up, Lord, and use that same power that's evident in Ezra 8 to protect not just the Israelites, but use that same power to protect us here today. For we pray in that powerful name of Jesus. Amen.